Welcome back to Across the Movie Isle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am well. I am so happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies, when did movie palaces become broke down palaces? Do you see what I see what I did there? Uh, that's the question Lane Brown asks at Vulture in a lengthy reported feature about the sad state of exhibition in our nation's fine multiplexes. Uh, watching movies with experts at a series of New York auditoriums that are among the best in the country, supposedly, uh, Brown experienced the gamut of shoddy projection problems. There were 3D filters left on lenses, which reduces the brightness projected on screen by a third. Uh, the masking systems that just didn't work. There were sagging screens with creases in them, projector bulbs that haven't been replaced in years. It makes it harder to see the action on screen. I could go on and on. Problems are myriad. Uh, as someone who goes to the movie theater more than, conservatively speaking, 99% of the country, um, I have to say... You are the 1%, with- Sonny. I am the literal one percent. Um, I, I have to concur with Brown uh, it, it, in a in a in a lot of these cases. Right, the state of projection is just bad. Like set aside set aside issues with audiences, the chatterboxes and the oblivious texters. It's a separate uh, and pressing problem. But beyond the ability of most theaters to fix uh, draft houses aside, the the one thing that theaters absolutely have in their power to control is the quality of the image they put on their screen. It is entirely within their power to make sure little things like, say the picture is in focus, or that the lens is properly aligned with the screen so the image isn't trapezoidal, right? That Those are things that they can do. The problem is that maintaining quality projection is hard when you've gotten rid of all the projectionists. Once upon a time, the projectionist in a movie theater was a skilled position. It is a person with technical skill, a lot of know-how, institutional knowledge. Uh, A lot of them were even unionized, right? Projectionists had to understand how to build film for projection, right? They had to load reels. They had to ensure that aspect ratios were correct. In some cases, they even had to perform minor surgeries on the prints themselves, cutting off snippets of film, splicing the reels back together, that sort of thing. Um, Just a, a quick story about this. You know, Stanley Kubrick is kind of known for being legendarily persnickety, right? Um, But that persnickety-ness led to an actual record of what it take what it takes to ensure that movies get projected properly, right? So, for instance, in the letter he distributed to projectionists for Barry Lyndon, um, he insisted that it be projected at one. One six six to one, uh, and no wider than one seven five to one. Right now, these are aspect ratios. One six six to one is uh, is a slightly boxier picture than you are used to if you're watching TV uh, and you have a sixteen by nine screen. Right, it's much boxier than cinemascope, which is a two point three five to one aspect ratio. Um, uh, neither of which, uh, neither of which. Uh, anyway, back to back to Barry Lyndon. One six six and one seven five. Neither of these are really standard aspect ratios. They're 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 slightly different. Point is, you had to pay attention to get it right. Um, He also demanded that no less than 15 foot Lamberts of light on the screen uh, be present and no more than 18. You know, I'm just like imagining Kubrick's right-hand man, Leon Vitale, storming into a modern AMC with a light meter and holding it up to the screen to ensure that, you know, the movies there are being shown in the the proper brightness. Um, I I, got to be honest, I've basically given up 
on standard screens at your AMCs, your Regals, your Cinemarks of the world. Okay, I have an Alamo pass, uh, an Alamo season pass for that sort of thing. I go uh, and watch the movies there, and it's it's. I'm pretty pretty certain that I'm going to get a good experience. The IMAX and Dolby systems are a little bit better. They're still far from perfect. Um, and as one of the nation's foremost defenders of the theatrical experience, I have to say I'm kind of annoyed by this. I'm annoyed by this. I'm being made to look foolish by the theaters, by the multiplex operators, and a man in my position cannot be made to look foolish. Uh, Peter, why can't the theaters get their shit together? You have one job. This is a you have one job situation, and it's it's not being done properly. I think there are a bunch of reasons, and I would also just push back a little bit on your opening monologue, uh, which suggested that at one point there was some sort of halcyon days of, like, you know, union projectionists in which everything worked well. I think that may have been true in some places, but everywhere I have lived for all of my life, projection has been spotty. And so I lived in small markets up until I moved to Washington, D.C. The biggest place I lived before Washington, D.C. was Lexington, Kentucky. And I went to the movies a lot starting uh, at about the age of 10. And I just constantly ran into terrible projection um, issues with sound not matching up with uh, with the picture issues with the picture just obviously being projected onto, you know, like off the screen. Right. Just stuff like that that I noticed even as a kid. Um before I was attuned to things like black levels, although my parents, like my mom's like a, has an art degree and is, would, would like walk out of movies and be like, the contrast in that movie was way off. And I'd be like, huh, what are you talking about, mom? And she'd be like, well, there are darks like the, the, the black levels are supposed to be, you know, actually black rather than like everything sort of washed out in gray. And then she'd sort of explain this stuff to me. And so I just don't feel like I have ever lived in an era where projection was particularly good. I do think there are some new things that have happened or some some things that have happened over the past couple of decades. And one is, yes, uh, the projectionist is it was at one point a sort of technical job. But even by the time I started going to see movies in high school, that job had been taken over in most chain theaters by by high school kids. By like maybe at best, you know, a sort of a, a, a local college film major who was kind of interested in this stuff, but being paid essentially nothing. I knew kids who worked in theaters who knew that the projectionists were 20 year olds who had who didn't know anything about uh, about how movies were supposed to be projected. So part of it is a, is a labor force issue. I just am not sure that we've ever had a good labor force, at least in small markets in a point where, time where I've ever lived. Another thing that's happened, though, and this is something you really see in that vulture piece is the profusion of formats. So we've talked about this with like with with movies like Avatar, right? There's all these formats out there. And one of the things that that uh, that has come out of that is that when you have 3D projectors, for example, 3D projectors have to be reset if you're going to show a 2D movie because otherwise you end up with a much too dim image. And the profusion of formats, there's just so many different ways of projecting a movie right now means that uh, that each time somebody has to go in and look at it and confirm that it is correct. A- another thing is there's not a person in the theater who is a representative of the theater who is there to judge picture quality. And it's not even obvious that most theaters have have very many people. Maybe there's a manager. Maybe there's one senior projectionist. Most proje- most theaters just don't have somebody who can even tell. And that's the other. And that brings me to my last thing is most audience members can't tell. 
this is a like this is an actual thing that I just don't think people like like us sort of think about that much. We would love for <clears throat> audience members to like know and have a deep sense of like oh this is but like most audience members cannot tell, especially unless it is really really obvious that the screen is just being projected off of the you know off the that, that the projection is going off the screen. Unless it's a sound match issue that's really obvious, or the sound is just cutting out, something like that. A washed out image, like a a, a not light enough image, a slightly out of focus image. I think a lot of audience members don't know, don't care, and they're looking at their phones anyway. Now, see, I think I think this is wrong in in a. I mean, I think this is right in the specific sense that they could not articulate why what they are seeing is wrong. But I think this is actually wrong. I think audiences go to these movies and understand something is wrong. They understand that the image is not correct. That they are they are seeing something that is subpar that they should not be uh, experiencing, and then say to themselves, "Well, why would I bother? Why you know I can go home and I watch something on my 4K. It's 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 better than this." I do think that audiences subconsciously understand that what they are seeing is inferior, and even if they can't, even if they can't, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You say that the the theaters don't have anybody who is checking a movie when the movie yeah. starts. That's I, you're right. Probably there there isn't somebody who is there doing a quality check every time a movie starts rolling, and that's a problem. That is a real problem that theaters should work to fix. I understand times are tight. I understand so many of these theaters are more interested in selling. But that's been uh, true for know, decades. They're, they're Applebee's. They're, they're, they're an Applebee's with a movie theater screen attached to it, right? I understand that to a certain extent. But the that doesn't change the fact that, again, they are there for a very specific purpose, which is to show films on a large screen to paying customers. And if that is your job, if that is the job of your business, then you need to have somebody who is ensuring that each of those screenings goes off correctly. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm crazy here. Alyssa, what, what was your takeaway from the story? Look, I think that both of you are actually correct in that I think there are probably a fair number of audiences who don't grasp the finer distinctions of what's being projected or not projected correctly on their screens. But I think Sunny is probably correct that folks sense on some level that this is not a premium experience. And I think the lack of attention to the basic thing that they're supposed to be delivering is part of the degradation of the movie-going experience sort of broadly over time at a time when prices have escalated to the extent that, you know, a date night out to the movies, especially, you know, when you factor in babysitting, a, you know, a family outing to the movies is a fairly expensive commitment for people. And the product that you get at the vast majority of movie houses does not feel like a premium product, right? Um, it doesn't feel like a premium product in that the food is not very good. It's, you know, such large, it's, you know, the food is terrible in such large portions and it's so expensive. Um, the, you know, the projection is not good. We've talked about, you know, the fact that places just aren't consistently even clean on a level that feels nice to go to. And, you know, to, you know, if you cannot respect the specific thing that you're supposed to be delivering or any of the wraparound experiences, but then your industry is also going out and selling this as a premium sort of artistic experience. There is a disjunct there that even audiences who aren't terribly sophisticated are absolutely going to grasp, right? I mean, you know, maybe you don't care if there's like a little bit of spillover on the edges, but you notice that it's happening and you notice that like you didn't really get enough butter in your popcorn and oh God, somebody left a wrapper under the seat and like half the bathrooms are out of order, right? And, 
you know, it's... It's like the, you know, it's the broken screens theory of the movie going experience. Um, if you let the core product go and then you let everything else around it go, people will notice and they will stop buying your argument that this is something that is special. You know, I mean, I, I enjoy, I want to connect with people when I go to the movies, but like the places that I prefer to connect with people don't generally have like sticky floors, right? <laughs> you know, um, if I'm going to, pay my nanny to stay late with the kids and go to a movie with my husband. Like, I want that to be a nice experience overall. And, you know, if um, if I'm not getting that, you know, people are going to move away whether or not they feel, you know, super affected by the details of the projection. And so I think it's just, you know, if you let the core product go, nothing else really matters. Um, and it sends the signal that nothing else really matters um i i agree with that and i i will just relate this back to uh my other um sort of a uh, hobby which is uh, uh cocktails and bartending and uh, one of my favorite uh craft cocktail bartender geniuses runs a bar in new york uh that i won't name because i don't want to bring this person into this podcast but uh it's just like a great great bar who is like a a drinks genius and he says that when he started in the bar business, he thought that the, the real thing was that we uh, wanted to make great drinks. And that's what mattered. And he said he eventually realized, like, well, great drinks will like matter to some extent. But what matters is the customer experience and the overall feeling that, like, this is high quality and that this, you know, sort of that this is that this is premium and that there's some prestige to it. Um and that's true in a lot of ways. And if you like a, a great drink, I think great drinks matter a lot. But I think for a lot of people, right. uh, uh, like it's the drinks are actually in some ways less important. What matters is just sort of the overall experience. That said, uh, most of my favorite cocktail bars, uh, they, it's uh, do test every single drink that they send out. And we do not see something similar in the world of theatrical projection. Right? Yeah, I mean, just, if you have if, if you have contempt for the thing that you're selling... How do you expect anyone else to have respect for it or have love for it? Uh, Part of this, again, part of this gets back to a a labor question, right? And so the way theaters basically operate now is that the – the, the projectors are all essentially run from centralized hubs somewhere else. You you have people in the in the uh, theaters who you know can change a bulb or can wipe it wipe down a projector or can you know move a 3D filter on and off, and that's about it. That's like the extent of the the work that they can do on it. Um, which in turn I think leads to a situation where. Part of the reason why IMAX and Dolby and the rest uh, are so popular now, I think, is not simply because of the size of the screen and not simply because of the quality of the speakers, though I think those two things are very important. The 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 real benefit of those screens is that you are essentially always going to get a the proper experience because IMAX and Dolby have their names out there. They're, they are branded as, you come here, you're going to get a premium experience, and we are paying attention to every screen everywhere in the world where we have somebody we we have somebody you know watching a movie i mean like i i remember talking to somebody who worked at imax once and he was like we get an alert if the brightness level drops 10 percent on a bulb we know when something has gone wrong we know when the whiteness levels aren't right on the screen we know we know when things need to be taken care of now look even then it's not 
100% guaranteed. I, I, I mentioned this in my, my newsletter this week, but I, I went to see... God, what was it? I went to go see uh, Ghost in the Shell, the live-action Ghost in the Shell, back in, like, 2017. Saw it at the Georgetown Dolby Atmos. Arguably the nicest, the single nicest screen in the city, depending on how you want to measure. At the time. At the time. Arguably the single nicest screen in, in all of Washington, D.C. at the time. And uh, I realized something was off about... 10 minutes into the movie because subtitles were getting cut off. Subtitles were getting cut off. And sure enough, it was being projected in the wrong aspect ratio. It was being projected in the wrong aspect ratio on the nicest theater in Washington, D.C. And I thought to my, and I, and I, I should have gone out and told somebody in the, in the booth area, but I didn't, I didn't want to get up and miss anything. I was reviewing it. I just sat there and took it. I went back to that same exact theater three months later to see Atomic Blonde. Also at the, the Georgetown AMC Dolby Atmos Theater. And son of a bitch, it was in the wrong aspect ratio again. It was in it, it had been in the wrong aspect ratio possibly for three straight months without anybody saying anything. And like I I, I lost I, I I went out to the I went out to the I went out uh, as the previews were playing. I went out. I was like, you guys got to fix this projector. It's you're you're projecting it in the wrong aspect ratio. I'm telling you the 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 MPAA previews are cut off at the bottom. If you go and you look at Whatever the specs are, you're, you're projecting it wrong. I promise you. And the guy looked at me very skeptically. He's like, okay, sir, uh, we'll go. We'll go check. And I'm, lunatic, yeah. And I go, I go back to my seat and I sit down. And like two minutes later, the screen like flips black and then flips to a different aspect ratio. Still the wrong aspect ratio. Flips to another aspect ratio. That's the right one. And movie after that plays perfectly. Plays in, plays in the proper, whatever, whatever the aspect ratio for Atomic Blonde in... in uh, Dolby Atmos was. Um, and I, as I was coming out of the theater after the movie ended, the guy flagged me down. He was like, how could you tell? How could what? you tell that it was right? What? And I was just, I like, I died a little inside. I died a little inside that day. Uh, because it you just, was, just okay. been like, you know, I just know. I, w- I mean, it that. was, but it, but this is like, this is the absolute state of things in so many yeah. theaters. And it's, it's a real, it is a real problem. Again, I, this is why I just go to, the Alamo Draft House in in Dallas now because it's so much easier. You know, you have them in D.C. Uh, you're never going to get something like that. And uh, the problem is that there's not an Alamo Draft House in every city. I mean, like every every city is not is it does not necessarily have something better than an AMC or a Regal. And it's a problem. It's a problem for theaters. I'm sorry. Slash slash rant and rant. I'll stop now. We can move to the exit question, but it drives me bonkers. Sony, it drives me bonkers. Uh, Sony. Sunny. Sony. <laughs> Sonny. Uh, Sonny, have you ever, like, spent, like, 20 minutes trying to adjust the aspect ratio on a hotel television because it annoyed you? Because I, I have. Just don't, I, I just don't watch. I just don't watch TV on it. I don't, I literally will not turn on a TV in a hotel. I'll, I'll watch something on my laptop, but not on on a hotel TV because there's a 90% chance that motion smoothing will be on. Um, you, you won't be able to change the aspect ratios. I'm just, I don't, I don't even bother. I would rather die than deal with that. I would rather watch something on my phone. I'd rather watch Tenet on my phone uh, held above my head than d- deal with that nonsense. All right. Uh, sorry. This is this has gone on too long. All right. What do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy? The theaters are, are really just often so bad at their one actual job. Peter. It's the worst. It's not even a controversy. It just makes me mad. Alyssa. It's whatever the cinematic equivalent of a Shonda for the Goyim is. Uh, for non-Jewish listeners of this podcast, uh, a Shonda for the Goyim is um, basically someone or something that shames uh, like 
Jews collectively in front of Gentiles. Um, and yeah, this is this is that. I don't. I, okay, I don't know what any of that. I I feel very. I'm a very trick. Just dance around that entirely because I don't. I don't feel uh, comfortable. No, I, it's a controversy. It's insane to me. It isn't. It dry. It drives me absolutely bonkers that this is not a thing that is uh, taken care of on a granular level and everything the fact that not every theater has a me in it uh going from screen to screen and making sure things are being projected just in the right aspect ratio leave it leave everything else aside drives me insane uh, all right. Uh, make sure to swing by Bull Bulwark Plus this week on Friday. We're going to have a bonus episode uh, discussing an Oscar snub. No, not for an individual award, not for an individual actor or an actress, but a whole category of awards. Why don't stunt performances get more love from the awards groups? We'll talk, we'll discuss that and more on Friday. Uh, and now on to the main event. Creed 3, a.k.a. Rocky 9. Uh, hit theaters this weekend and did some pretty solid business. It just destroyed projections, earning about $58 million in its first weekend. That's roughly two-thirds higher than was expected. Uh, people can't get enough of Adonis Creed, it seems. Adonis, who is played by Michael B. Jordan, uh, he is the bastard son of Apollo Creed, the boxer brutally killed by Ivan Drago way back in 1985's Rocky IV. Over the Creed series, we've seen as his name was first a hindrance, right? His adopted mother, Apollo's wife, I didn't want him to fight. She banned him from training with any of the L.A. gym, so he had to go out to Philly and get training from, from Rocky Balboa, uh, Sylvester Stallone. Uh, and then his name is a help. Because he gets his title shot solely because his last name is Creed, and he had spent the whole movie being like, "No, I got to make it on my own. I'm, I'm not I'm not on my last name." And then they're like, "Here's a title fight. We just need your last name." He's like, "Deal. I'm in. I'm in." Uh, in Creed Two, he earned another huge payday because of his name. He was fighting another guy who had another very famous name, Victor Drago, son of Ivan, uh, Soviet outcast. And in Creed Three, Creed Three is the first uh, film in this whole series in which Rocky does not make even an appearance. There was a contractual dispute between Stallone and the producer, which kept the Italian stallion at home. So this is just Adonis, baby. We're just, it's the first time we're really just getting to see him on his own, do his own thing. It's, it's all about him. And I gotta be honest with you guys, he's, he's kind of a dick. He's kind of a dick. Look, here's the setup. Adonis has retired from boxing, uh, having lost just once in his career. He's moved over to promotion, where his prize fighter in his gym is going to go up against Victor Drago. Uh, enter Damien Dame Anderson, who's played by Jonathan Majors. He's a childhood friend who went to prison when he pulled the gun on some guys who were beating up Adonis. Um, Dame is finally out. He wants a shot at the title. Uh, and following a barroom brawl that leaves Victor unable to fight, Dame gets his chance against Adonis's golden boy and promptly beats him. And he takes the belts. And then he starts insulting uh, Adonis in front of everyone. And then and then they get in a fight, right? Uh, Adonis must defeat Damien to reclaim his honor. And you could probably guess how that goes because this is a boxing movie. Now, look, here's the thing. All right, Adonis, I just want to, I want to, I want to spell this out for people because the movie really tries to gloss over it. Adonis is setting up his friend, the guy who went to prison for him for two decades, to get his ass kicked in front of an international audience, uh, just so he doesn't miss out on a pay-per-view payday. Um, Adonis also threw his own fighter into the ring underprepared against a guy who is just out there trying to hurt people, uh, and is just trying to destroy the world. And, Nothing Adonis does in this movie 
like to Damien, who he abandoned and ignored in prison, not, or or his own fighter, who he is again just kind of like screwing over with this title shot, is honorable. He's like he has become Don King. He is the Don King of the series now. Um, and the movie is clearly at war with itself here because it it wants us to love Adonis. It really wants us to love Adonis, and I like Adonis. Michael B. Jordan. He's a great actor. He's very charming. He's got a lot of personality. I, I want to cheer for him. But he's such a classic Nepo baby. He's this guy who gets all the chances because of his name and resents having that thrown in his face and is just screwing people over all the time. I I, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I had a great time with this film. I, I do. I'm, I'm, I'm throwing all this out there. I, I still really enjoyed it. It's a fun, crowd-pleasing picture. Uh, Michael B. Jordan is um, the director here. It's his directorial debut. His influences here are less the Stallone entries in the series and more like video games or anime. There's a moment early on uh, where he is pinpointing a fighter's weak points. You can almost see like the video game focus meter kick in. And then he's, he, like, delivers the death blow and, like, knocks the guy out. It's it's kind of funny. Um, and then the closing fight is is it's actually unlike anything else we've seen in the series thus far. It's very expression, expressionistic. It's less realist. It's very, um, very kind of art house. Uh, it's a it's welcome change of pace, I think. I th- there's only so many times you can do the we're shooting a boxing match and it's a real fight sort of thing. Uh, I don't know. I like the movie. It's fine. Um, I, I do find the whole uh, Nepo baby angle here to be very interesting, but apparently I'm the only one. I don't know. Alyssa, what did you make of it? Um, so I texted, I think I saw this before either of you, and I texted um, both of you that men would rather contend for the world heavyweight title than go to therapy, and then rewatched uh, Creed and Creed 2 before this podcast and realized there's actually a scene in Creed 2 where... Adonis is like working out of the bag right after uh, winning his his world title, and he and Rocky have an actual conversation about how it's cheaper to like hit things than to go to therapy. Um, so I feel vindicated. Um, I did not love this movie, um, and I really I was someone who is hugely skeptical of the entire enterprise. Was very disappointed that this is what Coogler and Michael B. Jordan were doing with their time, and then just completely loved Creed, really liked Creed 2 as well. Um, And I agree with Sunny that I think this movie has a real sort of hero problem. And more than that, it's sort of, it's a vision of justice is very strange. Um, The idea that, like, so Damien is this person who you know, came out of this incredibly brutal group home where he and Adonis were living, did not get rescued by, like, a rich lady from Beverly Hills, um, was completely, like, the movie, again, sort of suggests that, you know, the reason that Adonis didn't check up on him or ever visit him in prison is because, um, you know, his his surrogate mother, like, hid Damien's letters. But, like, he never checked up on his friend in prison. He comes out, um you know, sort of uses the guy as a punching bag. And then justice is supposed to be that, like, he, you know, knocks this guy out and humiliates him and probably ruins him, right? I mean, you know, it's not like one title is going to make Damien, like, financially secure or, you know, there's there's no there are no questions here about, like, parole or, like, how a parole officer would feel about him, like, getting involved in professional boxing. And it's like... And so Creed, like, knocks out and humiliates his own friend, and then they, like, go visit each other in the locker room, and everyone's like, we good, okay, I'll be around if you need me. And its vision of justice is really weird, right? I mean, and part of what's strange about it is that the movie sort of glosses over 
what's I think is supposed to be sort of an extended period of time where Damien is like trash talking Adonis in public and insulting his masculinity and, you know, talking about like how, you know, their past together. And we never see any of that happen except for Damien calling in to, you know, a TV hit. And we don't really see the cumulative effect of it on Adonis, right? Like in a weird way, the movie deals with Adonis's feelings about retiring and sort of unresolved issues around sort of his father and his reputation through Bianca more so than like anything else that we see Bianca Adonis being is his, experiencing uh, on screen, right? Like Bianca has given up performing because she's trying to preserve what's left of her hearing as long as she can. Like they've had these sort of parallel career tracks and we see her reckon with that you know, and talk to Damien about it more than Adonis ever does. And, you know, the the franchise as a whole has never, you know, and I think structurally it can't posit a future where Adonis fully moves on from boxing and, like, gets emotionally healthy, right? Because then he wouldn't be getting in the ring anymore. Um, and, you know, a movie – and part of what's a bummer about that is, like, you do get these sort of – steps towards emotional maturity in the previous two movies, right? Like, Rocky agrees to go through chemotherapy, despite the fact that he doesn't think it's going to work, because Adonis basically makes him do it. But, like, he gets healthy and, like, takes care of himself and sort of lives on, despite the fact that everyone he loved is gone. In this, I mean, this in the second movie, the real emotional peak is Ivan throwing in the towel on behalf of his son and protecting his son in a way that, like, Rocky didn't do for Apollo Creed um, back in the day. And realizing that, like, preserving his son's, like, life and ability is more important than this particular vendetta. And Creed Three doesn't have a moral step forward like that for Adonis um, in a way that I think makes it feel just much less emotionally resonant and sort of like morally and ethically weaker than the previous movies in this trilogy. Um, and unlike Sunny, I hated the staging of the third fight. I mean, that oh, to like a certain that? extent that I thought it didn't work at all. I thought it took, it, I thought it just sapped all of the sort of emotional tension out of the scene. I thought it looked cheesy. Um, it I, did not work for me. I, I can understand that. No, I mean, I, I, I still think the best. The, you mentioned the the arc with uh, Victor and Ivan Drago in the second movie. I still think that's the the best arc in the whole in the whole series. The, it's the thing that is the most emotionally resonant in this in this whole series. I mean, I, I think I, I really think that <laughs> Creed three would have been stronger if they just leaned into Adonis being a real villain. Because I like he's just he's just a bad he's a bad friend and a bad guy in this movie. Nothing he does. Is is looking out for anybody but himself? It's it's um, really weird. Also, can I just say, as a lady, if I discovered that like my husband and the father of my child had concealed significant material facts about his life from me, um, and was behaving the way Adonis was and wouldn't go to therapy, we would have had some serious problems. Well, I mean, I would still, th- I still, th- I agree with your text. A man would rather fight for the heavyweight title than go to therapy, and that's only reasonable. Uh, Peter, would you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, I mean, I I think that's the point of the movie, but I'm I, I liked it better than Alyssa because I unironically just kind of agree with it. I like I'm not much of a boxing fan or sports fan generally, but I I do like boxing movies because they're all kind of 
in some sense, they're always about male rage and identity issues, right? It's just Rocky, it's Raging Bull. It's, uh, if you remember Antoine Fuqua's Southpaw with Jake Gyllenhaal from, I don't know, five, six years ago, right? And, and so what you get in Creed 3 is this kind of gloopy melodrama about a crisis of masculinity and about what it means to be man and have man feelings, which is, you know, all feelings, which feelings you don't know what to do with. They're confusing because feelings are always confusing, right? There's literally a scene in, in Creed 3 in which he's talking to his wife and he's like, you're always better with the, the feelings. He's like, he can't even like say the word. Because he's just so totally not in touch with any of that. And and what the movie then sort of posits is, well, like dealing with your feelings means doing push-ups and punching stuff and like running in the heat and just getting out of your head until you can't think anymore. And I think that's that's not going to be satisfying to a certain type of person. And in some ways, like you, we could argue with the sort of the, the psychological healthiness of that. But there is actually something realistic, even if this is sort of cartoony and sort of melodramatic, uh, right? In in the way that it kind of gets it, how a lot of dudes just don't know what to do with their feelings, except to exercise them physically. And I will just tell a personal story here, which was that I recently spent a weekend with a bunch of old guy friends, all of whom are about 40 years old. We've known each other for a very long time. And at one point, we were just talking about, like, what do you do when you're, like, stressed and to a one, every single one of them was just like, well, I I have some sort of routine. And it was just like uh, karate and golf and like all these other like physical thing that they do just to get themselves out of their head to sort of burn through whatever that energy is. And like, that's a thing that guys do. And it's real. And this movie is this movie has like some problems, I think, just as a movie, just in, in the, the story is like it's it is quite underwritten. Um, and in particular, uh, Dame's story and background and what is happening to Dame off screen, there's just not nearly enough there. So like he's living in a crappy, uh, you know, not quite not even a studio apartment. And then he wins a fight and he's in a, a much nicer place. And there's a girl with him and he's got a posse. Like somehow, like if you win a fight, you get a posse <laughs> immediately and they, they'll like yeah, kill for you, I guess. I don't know how that works. He I guess I'm not again, I'm not much of a like I'm not into boxing. Well, also, like, me, where does he get the money to hire someone to like do a hit on Ivan Drago? Or, well, let me, well, no, Victor those were Drago, right. Well, like, well, so those were those were his boys from prison. We okay. that's we we see the we see the picture. Remember that that's right. That's right. The, the guy who does the hit from prison was the guy who does the hit on on Drago is is his boy from prison. Are was, the other guys? Yeah, that's right. It's the whole crew. Do they all get released Unclear. at the exact the same beach, time? The beach party. Yeah, that, that beach that beach scene is 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 hilarious because he is like Dame really is basically the Joker in this movie. Yeah. It's like it's like all he has this he has this incredibly convoluted plan that all works perfectly and then we cut to him and he's got like a whole gang around him yeah and he's he's got like a fancy apartment and it's uh and he's yeah. calling into talk shows and being like I challenge the Batman to a fight <laughs> and it's like it's amazing it's it's really wonderful but can but I being I under I'm uh, oh, sorry go ahead I don't know I just wanted to go back to sort of what you were saying personally have I talk to you guys about my grandfather um and like why i have trouble with boxing movies i don't think so. um i don't think so apologies okay, if you have and we've forgotten yeah I don't. yeah no, no no um so my grandfather on my mother's side um was like a an amateur boxer 
um, and was blinded in one of his eyes boxing and suffered really serious depression later in his life that I assume is like partially attributable to um, getting hit a lot. And I have, you know, I have very sort of tender memories of him. He was a wonderful grandfather to me, um, but I think really struggled in a lot of ways. And I, I remember that, you know, one of my most intense physical memories of him is that blinded eye. And I, you know, I have a really hard time watching the scenes in boxing movies because of that. And I have a hard time, you know, I mean, he was not obviously not boxing when I was like alive and remembered any of this. But um, I, I think for me, having Stallone in the previous movies as someone who sort of represents like the physical toll of that um, was an anchor for me in those movies. And the scene where... Duke, Wood Harris's character, is sort of going over with Adonis, just like the catalog of his sort of serious injuries and the toll it's taken on his body. And like the risk of that was in some ways to me the most affecting scene in the movie, because to a certain extent, like I, I have lived with some knowledge of what that's like without the payday and the glamour and the like famous wife and the legacy. You know, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, my grandfather was not a ruined person. He was, you know, my mother, he was wonderful to my mother, he was wonderful to me and my sister. Um, but I really I really struggle with the violence of it, of these movies, and the presentation of that as, like, a healthy way to, like, get your man feelings out. Because the vast majority of people who box are not going to get any of the rewards and like getting hit a lot just has consequences and you know i i think it is to the credit of the first couple movies in this franchise and to just like the incredible charisma of michael b jordan the great work of jonathan majors who i just i love to see on screen even when he drives him even in movies that largely drive me bananas like um quantumania did that I have found these movies, like, sort of watchable, um, and in some cases even rewatchable and really engaging. Um, but yeah, just speaking personally, like, they they are hard for me. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just, it's always interesting to watch them having seen a very different side of that sport. Yeah, I can, I can definitely imagine that. And that is, in fact... Well, so obviously I don't have the personal experience, but the the level of violence is one reason why I'm not a big fan of actual boxing, and it's different for me watching it in a in a movie like this, where I know that it's staged and that it's not uh, that it's not threatening anyone in the same way. But um, but I'm not a big fan of of, of boxing in part because this is like guys punching each other actually does not seem like a particularly good way of of working things out. Um, at, you know. A, at the same time, what I think this movie gets at, what I think this series gets at, is this way that dudes will will work out their issues by turning off their brains and and by max maxing out their bodies. You're sort of maxing out their bodies to turn off their brains, and mm, yeah. it, it puts that it puts that on screen in a way that uh, I think is recognizable to a lot of guys, even if they're not actually punching stuff i mean again i you know i have a couple of friends who who play golf and it's and like you would think that golf is like not like i know it's really like intense focus you know physical thing for for people who take it seriously but it's that thing that you don't often see on screen 
in a way that is yeah outside of i don't know superhero movies or something which like doesn't really make make the case for this sort of thing do any of your guy friends like tow light aircraft with their shoulders (laughs) uh not that i know i will say I would say my friends who actually do uh, fight and train for fighting uh, hated some of the things in this movie like that. The punching the trees, which is like something out of a martial arts, like yeah. a, 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 you know, Japanese martial arts epic or. Uh, also, you know, what did the tree do to you? Like, come on, man. Like you just got to you got you just got to punch something sometimes. Uh, I'll be the troglodyte and say that I, I really enjoy watching boxing and MMA and that sort of thing. I, I am I'm pro watching dudes wail on each other. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of skill involved. I enjoy watching skill. I, I enjoy watching people at the top of their game uh, perform skilled violence against one another. That's it's that's not violence. It. It's about focus and control, Sonny. That's what we learned from this movie. Right. It's well. It's like saying like poker is not gambling. It's about you know probability and reading the player. That's all true. Mm, kind of. Uh, all right. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Creed Three, Peter? Thumbs up. It's not a great movie, but it's an enjoyable one. Alyssa. Um, like with all my stipulations aside, I'd still say like a mild thumbs up. Uh, thumbs up. It's fun. Uh, I enjoy this whole Nepo franchise. It's it's great. Um, all right, that is it for this week's show. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Make sure to tell your friends a strong rec- re- recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is in fact the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 